Welcome to the Modern Savage Podcast. This is episode six. My guest today is one of my best friends and one of the most interesting people I know. An environmental scientist by profession, he is also a scholar, historian, naturalist, and an avid outdoorsman whose love of adventure and wild places is matched only by his love of the stories those places hold. Please welcome my friend Jared. All right. So I got to tell you, I was, uh, I was up north and I saw a wild rice sign. You, you? Immediate, you immediately came to mind. Nice. <laughs> I didn't even realize, like, you know, that, that, you know, we knew and I had talked about that before, but the fact mm-hmm. that, like, wild rice is actually a really big thing in northern Wisconsin and yeah, northern absolutely. Michigan. Yeah. So, and your, your folks, you've done it. Yeah, not since I was a kid. And uh, my dad used to do it a lot and um, kind of slowed down on it, but he's back into it now. But he's well, got like, a little more time on for his For people hands. that are not familiar with what ricing Mm-hmm. in the Midwest is? Tell them. Well, uh, basically wild rice is, uh, it's not actually a rice, I guess. It's a sort of grass. Uh, grows in shallow water uh, in lakes, sometimes um, uh, rivers also in slow water. And uh, basically you take a canoe. It's a two-person job. You got one person who pulls the canoe from the back through the rice. And I mean, this is, you know, the rice stands up five, six feet over the canoe sometimes. It's right. pretty tall. So you're pushing it through with a pole, and then uh, the person in the front of the canoe has a pair of sticks, two feet long maybe, yeah. tapered, um, and you pull the rice over the... I'm doing hand signals here like people <laughs> can hear me, but um, push the, the heads of the grass over the canoe with mm-hmm. one pole, and then you kind of whack it with the other gently, and mm-hmm. when the rice is ripe, it just falls into the bottom of the canoe. Mm-hmm. So when so, you go out on one of these things, or when you have gone out on one of these things, mm-hmm. how, like how much, how many pounds of rice, like on a like on a good day, would you come back with? Oh, I think last fall my folks did about eighty pounds. Okay. In uh, in one can, you know, that's basically like a heaping canoe load. Sure. Um, and that you know, by the time you process it, winnow it, mm-hmm. uh, get the husks off, and roast it, you know, right. that might be, I don't know, I think maybe 30 or maybe less. Okay. So, you know, there's some waste in there. There's like chaff to the right. rice. <clears throat> and probably some moisture too that you're yeah, right, rid of. Yeah, right, Roasting the moisture out, correct. Can anyone go out and do this? Is this like is this like mushrooming where you don't have to um, have a license or something like that? Your people can just go out and do it what they want? Yeah, you do need a license in Wisconsin. Uh, you do? It's big in Minnesota also, I'm not sure, but I think usually, yeah, there's like a rice harvester license. It's like maybe five bucks or something, ten dollars. Okay. It's pretty cheap and, you know, you don't need hunter safety or anything right, like of that. Course. But yeah, you presumably need most of the rice. Is, is the rice, do you need that even if the rice is on your land? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure about that. Okay. Okay. I haven't ever owned a lake, so I haven't had that problem. <laughs> but, All right. Well, uh, yeah, hey. my, my folks do uh, river rice mostly. Cheers, which, Yeah, good cheers. Good to have you down. Good to, good to be here. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Uh, well, you know, nothing but the best for you, brother. Oh, that's very fine. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so there's lake rice and river rice. Uh, uh, I think some people get snobby uh, about lake rice being superior somehow. Okay. But um, I, I haven't noticed any difference. It's, okay. It's really good. So, I mean, I think, you know, we, I was just up in northern, well, I drove up through northern Wisconsin, then kind of over up into the UP and then up in northern Michigan last week. It's just fascinating to me what a little known part of the country that is. Yeah, I know. People just, 
you know, you always hear people from the coast refer to the Midwest as the flyover states, which right, always kind of right. makes me laugh because people from the coast should stay there. Um, Agreed. But um, even, I think, even in the Midwest, there's so few people that really know about, you know, northern Wisconsin and northern Michigan. And the place is just spectacular. It really is. I mean, it's one of the most naturally beautiful places that I've ever been in my life. Yeah, no doubt. And sparsely populated. You know, it's not like the beautiful places on the coast where you go and it's just overrun with humanity. Right. Um, it's, yeah, you can kind of get away from the crowds. You know, and obviously the UP and northern Wisconsin are very popular in the summer. There's sure. a lot of folks from the Twin Cities or Chicago or things like that. where They have cabins or they they travel up there or go to resorts. But, uh, yeah, you can still get away from people, especially if you're there, you know, in a off-season, cooler weather. Right. And it's, it's beautiful, man. The history of the place is like fascinating too like yeah. we were on uh, we stopped by uh, Mackinac mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. which is way too touristy for my for my taste right. but if you actually take the time to read up on the history of the island that was a hub unbelievable like, of the upper midwest well not only that but but like you hub. had you had the french had a, a very strong presence there right. both the missionaries and sort of uh, i guess like explorers mm-hmm. but then you also had like the british in the 1800s built a fortress there yeah and that was people probably have no idea that those conflicts even that's i'm always fascinated and i've said this before that americans have so little appreciation for the history of their own country yeah well you're right in my wheelhouse here because this is something i have a lot of interest in and i've done a lot of reading on is that the whole great lakes like fur trade era uh, you know, and then the post-French and Indian War when basically, you know, the French were in Wisconsin, Canada, uh, long before the British were. Absolutely. And well, uh, look at the names. Oh, right. right? Absolutely. Joliet. Even around here. Well, yeah. I mean, even going down the mid, you know, the Midwest. Right. Yeah. You know, like Joliet, or excuse me, Illinois, like Joliet. Sure. And all those things. That's yep. those are all. Yeah, there's a lot of French place names in Wisconsin still. Even here in the, you know, Milwaukee. La- 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 Cross, Fond du Lac. They're all. Yeah. Those are all. Right. I don't know right. about the cross, but Fond du Lac certainly. Yeah, the cross is also. That's, okay, that's yeah. what I thought. Yep. So yeah, I mean, so talk a little bit about as far as that's one of the things that you and I share is obviously like a, a real deep love of history. But what to you is some of the most like fascinating stuff that that you've come across in your reading or your research that you don't think a lot of people are familiar with? Oh, I don't know. I have a most fascinating I, I would have to think about that a little longer but sure um, I have a, a real personal interest where I grew up in northern Wisconsin um, was right near a fort that was discovered tell people uh, where you grew up fort. just so they have a general idea uh, northwest Wisconsin like Burnett County area yeah and uh, basically uh, in it was relatively late it was like 1803 1804 there was a, a trading fort built there uh-huh. um and it's i mean a couple miles away down a small river like literally the the river i grew up on mm-hmm. and it was just right in my wheelhouse as a kid who liked to you know play outside hunt fish yeah. um and i liked all that you know traders trappers indians kind of stuff sure and, uh it was actually a, a guy i went to high school with his grandfather was a native american okay and uh he he found an old journal and I, I, forgive me if I don't get these details exactly right, but the gist of it is he came across a copy of an old journal from a trader uh-huh. who talked about being posted at this fort for, and I mean, when I say fort, it was very small. Sure. Uh, basically a trading outpost. Mm-hmm. Um, and he came across this journal and he was interested in it because the, one of the people uh, who, one of the white men who was there, his name was Connor. Uh-huh. And that was his family's surname. Okay. So basically he was descended from this trader 
and the Native Americans. And, you know, they're basically a Native American family, but they had this Connor, you know, blood in them. And sure. so he got interested in it and he started poking up and down the river. And this old guy on his, just on his own, uh, found the location. Uh-huh. And uh, so, you know, they called in Wisconsin Historical Society and uh, they ended up excavating found it. Founded just like, founded by sort of wandering through the woods yeah, I had think a general so. idea of where the location have, may have been or found it because of historical records because of the records uh the descriptions in the journal yeah like he knew where he was compared to the lake okay on the river and uh yeah i'm not sure i don't know if he used and if he found was doing this metal journal detection how? Or how did that come across well it was something that had been published oh it, it was yeah it wasn't like a you know it wasn't like in an antique bookstore and he wandered in and ended up finding this journal i don't believe so but okay. i don't i can't really speak to that i don't know sure. the depth of it but um yeah, it was just a really fascinating story. You know, it had a personal connection to the you know the place I grew up, the place right. I really had a deep love for. Yeah, and then kind of this historical period that I was really interested in, and uh, so yeah, kind of took a deep dive on that for a while, and kind of reading everything I could about it, and it was really great. You know, it was a cool connection to to the past. I think that you know when you have an opportunity to do something like that, to really sort of explore where it is that you grew up. Mm-hmm. And the history of those places, like even I, and I'm, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, but, you know, if you do research, even on when I did it on my own hometown of what it used to be, and the fact that, oh, this used to be a, you know, this was a speakeasy back right, in the day right. where they used to, yeah. you know, they used to cart out the shine to hear, yeah, yeah. and, you know, this was, you know, and these, <laughs> these apparently reputable businesses were actually, you know, maybe something on the slide. Right, it's right. it's kind of cool to, to see that. I think it gives like a richness you know, in right, right. a deepness, like you said, of the appreciation for those kind of things. I think one of the cool things is how there seems to be a bit of a renaissance going on, maybe at a small level, but definitely still where people are beginning to have uh, an appreciation for uh, the way that things used to be. And almost maybe there's an attempt at a bit of a restoration. One mm-hmm. of the things that I've seen recently is, um, you know, a lot of sort of southern wisconsin and northern illinois it used to be prairie right and then they came through and there was a lot of farms and then those farms went away and just a lot of you know like invasive tree species came in and, and the the land changed yeah absolutely. but you see a lot of work being done right now by like the department of natural resources to go in and return it right to it's it's original yeah, prairie or oak savanna is a exactly. big thing too yeah southern wisconsin northern illinois and i i mean my whole our whole life like i feel like that never took place and i don't know it's only been in the past five years that you know where my parents live behind our house mm-hmm. was exactly that it used to be you know a sort of a combination of like you said prairie and oak savanna mm-hmm. and then over years it just got completely infested with things like buckthorn and whatever sure. and it was just totally overgrown okay i never knew any different growing up mm-hmm. it was just you know it was the forest but as you research and you begin to read and have an appreciation for the history, you're like, oh, this isn't what it was. Past five years, DNR came, took out all the buckthorn, cut down a bunch of the trees, and there's been a huge push to bring it back to its natural state. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. Huge I mean, it's, fan a, of that. it's kind of a never-ending battle. Things like buckthorn and you know all the invasive plant and animal species are, make it a really constant battle. But um, yeah, I like to see it too because I have a, I'm a big fan of that native kind of the native ecosystems to the places that I enjoy spending time, you know? You know, one of the the things that kind of catches me up on that a little bit is places like uh, Hawaii. You know, I was just there. <laughs> right, right. You're going there. You know, we have friends there. And none of the animal species out there are native. Right, and they were all brought by the Polynesian. 
Well, they were actually brought by like a lot of European explorers that like sort of like let them. Oh, sure, sure. But I mean like the chickens and pigs? Correct. That's that's Polynesians. Absolutely. Those came with humans. Or things like the access deer. You know, oh, like right, they were a right. gift from, you know, I think the Raj of India to the, yeah. you know, to the Polynesian king. and everything up. And so, yeah, and that's a really hotly debated topic because right. you do have these things that, like, for example, like of the axis deer, not, they have no natural predators. They're hammering the vegetation. They have mm-hmm. a huge amount of runoff. That runoff goes into the ocean. It's killing off the reef. Right. So if you're a conservationist, you're like, this is definitely a problem. Sure. However... They've been there for so long that the guys that live out there, this is part of their culture now, being able to go and hunt. Right, and right. For guys like you and I that have a, you know, a very, that's a cornerstone of our lives. Now they're talking about going and doing, you know, an eradication. Right. And that's, it's kind of a catch-22. It's a complicated issue, for very sure. Much. You know, it's, just, you know, hog hunting in the South is very similar. You know, they're doing a lot of damage, but there's a lot of culture and a lot of people who really like hunting hogs. Right. I don't blame them. I'd probably like hunting hogs if I was down well, there. Well, that's an interesting conversation we'll get into because I was just yeah. down at my, uh, so a buddy of mine that I hadn't seen for years, uh, hilariously, this dude grew up on the, on the East Coast, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like he is... Is Italian as the Sopranos, and had just decided that he uh, he had enough of the of the East Coast life, and had an opportunity and uh, took a job uh, right outside of Dallas. Nice. He hasn't even been there a year. Bought himself a ranch. We went out there. He's already got a guy that runs cattle on it for him. Nice. But he's got maybe it's I don't know a couple hundred acres, mm-hmm. and he's got quite a bit of it in uh, like oak and hickory forest, and in addition to cattle. He has got himself quite a pig population. So. Nice. We've got a place to go. Fantastic. He's been sending me videos, man. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's something else. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's uh, the pig hunting thing is something I, you know, I lived down in Texas for Where did you live down there? Well, I was based out of a town called Giddings, which is east of Austin. Sure. Um, I was dating my wife at the time, but not married. And mm-hmm. she moved down there, and she was working in Austin and had an apartment. So mm-hmm. I was in the oil field, so I was bumming around all over South Texas and East Texas. I have no and, problem uh, seeing you doing so, that. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, like, saying where I lived is kind of hard to do. I, right. I was based out of the Austin area, but I was living a transient, in, one might yeah, say. Yeah, I was living in dirty oil field trailers for uh, most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Texas is a, Texas is a cool spot. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, we were... I didn't think I was going to like it when I moved there. Really? And, yeah. Why? Uh, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, I was I was young. I was 23, maybe, right sure. out of college. I just had an idea. I don't, you know, Texas has gotten sexy in the last few years. Everybody's into Texas. But I kind of, I just kind of had this, ah, you know, the South. You know, I was a North, I was, I'm a Great Lakes kid. I, you know, I was like, hey, yeah, you know, whatever. Been, I've that, always loved the South. I've yeah, always yeah. loved the well, South. Maybe you were more enlightened. Than I don't know, man. I, you know, it's I don't know if it was like just you know what I you know my father and and his love of the history of the South and yeah. things like that. But yeah. the, I've spent quite a bit of time down there, lived down there a bit, mm-hmm. and I can't say enough good things about it. Yeah, well, like I said, I came around. You know, mm-hmm. I uh, I moved down there, and you know the heat. Humidity. I still, I the still had the heat. Something else. The heat. Like something else. You take a shower at six in the morning and you step outside out of the air conditioning and you're already sweating. Yeah. The sun's not even up yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know that was rough, but uh, but I really grew to really like it. Made some real good friends down there. Had mm-hmm. a good time down there. It's interesting how, I think, even in the very immediate past, we're starting to see a lot of changes as far as. You know, typically what you think of Texas is not necessarily the case anymore. And we were down there and we were talking, you know, to 
couple guys that you know grew up down there mm-hmm. and they were just saying at, at the moment there is just this massive influx of people right. from around the country everyone's just like we're moving to texas right and there is a concern that and rightly so i think that as all these people come in the culture of texas which is known as you know which was what you classically think of like texas culture sure is gonna be affected by that because how could it not be right but i hope i hope to a very minimal degree because i have a real appreciation for for right, what texas right. is about yeah i mean they're not the only place facing that kind of thing you know you look at the west mm-hmm. uh you know montana colorado and people moving from the west coast and you know they roll in and they want it to be california right you know i've seen some great and, shirts uh, recently man we were just down in florida yeah. and i saw a shirt that said uh don't new york my florida yeah, <laughs> right on, dude. Good I think for that you. Might have said. <laughs> well, I don't know, man. I don't. You know, well, that's true. I guess Florida still maintains its. Uh, well, I think the point of it is, is if, if, very if you thought New York was so great, you should stay there. If you don't think New York's good enough to live, and you're going to move someplace else, right? Then you need to adopt the culture of of your of your yeah, yeah. of your now and, new and, home state. You know, I I agree with you, and I you know I wouldn't say you don't necessarily have to adopt it, but don't move in and then start pissing on correct what everybody who has lived there, how they live their lives, you know, Absolutely. and start telling them how to do things. Yeah. There's a difference between adopting a culture and just, like, not being a dick, you know? Right. Well, just don't look down your nose at it. Like, right. if, you, if exactly. you don't like it, that's fine. No one's going to make you do anything or you don't, right? right? But, like, don't don't start giving the stink out of people because this is the way they've been doing it for yeah. forever. Right. I mean, you know, one of the funniest contrasts, I think, for me anyway, is the, just Chicago and Milwaukee. Yeah. Like there, I mean, there just could not be two cities closer to each other that right. are more that are more different except <laughs> for the except for the fact maybe fort worth and, and dallas which is hilarious because of all the people that have moved to dallas yeah that's a very very stark contrast yeah, too. I, I believe it would give me your observations as a chicago area guy coming to milwaukee I, I mean the first thing i'd say is i wouldn't go back for all of king midas's gold okay that's a good start it's um <laughs> chicago is too big there's just right too many people it's just too congested i mean even driving downtown and again i'm not hating on chicago i know a lot of people i have you know friends there family there they love it great and the reason that there's different places to live is because everybody has a different want right and that's you know it's like why is there 31 flavors in baskin robbins because some people like strawberry and some people like vanilla it's all good sure um but just driving into chicago just the footprint of the city is it's enormous unbelievable you just can't imagine and you know for dudes like you and me that like to see some grass and some water and some trees there's none of it it's just concrete to the horizon and there's just there's no uh the thing with chicago to me is it's not like you know la which is sort of hemmed in by mountains or new york which is kind of hemmed in by the fact that it's islands and peninsulas it's kind of there's kind of a limit to where it can go whereas chicago has like sprawl it can sprawl to like across the state of illinois exactly mississippi if it had to you know and it seems to be trying to absolutely i totally agree with that it's crazy i I lived down there for a couple years also when jamie was getting her master's my wife and um yeah like you know i was in the like the west suburbs so it was like all of the hassle of the big city without any of the like 
cool, you know, downtown life yeah. sort of things. It was like the worst of both worlds, and <laughs> I couldn't have been happier to leave, you know. And I, I, think, I don't have a personal problem with Chicago. Yeah. It's a great place to go for a weekend. Yeah. You know, if you want to go and have a nice dinner, see a show, whatever your thing is, yeah. museum. I think that there's always great, but there's always something to be taken away from a, from a major metropolitan area. There's a right. tremendous amount of culture, history, right? It's a crossroads yeah. of humanity. You know, di- there's all these different sort of cultures coming together. Mm-hmm. And you have things in an environment like that that you don't necessarily have in other environments. And there definitely, I have an appreciation for that. Mm-hmm. But as far as to live, nah, man, it's just yeah, not my no, cup of tea. No, thank you. No, not at all. And the cost all. of living is ridiculous, too. Oh, that's... I mean, even, co- again, compare Milwaukee to Chicago just in cost of living. Yeah. It's just absurd what you can get here as opposed to there. So, again, I think, you know, you people move to where they want to move because, uh, you know, it, it feels the way they want it to feel and, and mm-hmm. good for that. So... But, uh, yeah. So you had your, your daughters out slinging arrows the other day. I did. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. They taken to it? Uh, the oldest is definitely taken to it. Uh, middle one, occasionally. Little one, she's kind of too small yet. Yeah? She's still in the suction cup bow phase. She's only two. <laughs> hey, you know what? Good for her. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. So do you think, I mean, so how old is your oldest daughter now? My oldest is nine, almost ten. Okay. And do you, does she have a desire to join you? in in the woods yet as far as you know a hunt yeah did i tell you i took her turkey hunting this last weekend you did not tell me yeah yeah it how'd was, that go uh well poorly <laughs> i had a i had a tag earlier a couple weeks ago and i got a turkey so the pressure was kind of off you know sure i had bought a leftover tag the wisconsin seasons you know it's like a six week season but you get a tag that's only good for one week so i had an earlier tag and then i bought a leftover tag for this past week that just ended tuesday mm-hmm. um and she had said, you know, I brought home that bird and the older girls were really interested, you know, just the feathers. And I mean, sure. an amazing, beautiful, weird woodland dinosaur, I you know, think and kids, the story are, kids of, are fascinated by that stuff. The story know? of the American turkey and its its resurgence yeah. is one of the greatest stories of oh, conservation. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, maybe ever. Yeah. I mean, we have them here in Tosa. Yeah, right. I, I was... Literally, just driving down state, and you know Tosa. Mm-hmm. There's five of them just holding up traffic, right. just walking right. right across the street. I was driving. They were got. They had, they were roosted up on a guy's roof. No kidding. There were two of them just just yeah. standing right up there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So the oldest had said, you know, she saw the bird and she's like, Daddy, you know, I I want to come with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's a real sensitive, sweet uh, girl. Yeah. Uh, and I think she. You know, I talked to my kids. I have all girls. I right. kind of offer. I, I want the the offer is always there. Right. You're always welcome. Right. But I'm not going to push them. Sure. You know. Well, so, I think if they come to it of their own volition. Right. 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 So much that's better. I'm going to bend over backwards. You show any interest. I'm going to buy whatever we need. I'm going to take whatever time I need. I'm going to just try and foster that. Right. Right. So she showed some interest in uh, in coming along and i said well hey i got a tag coming up this week and you know you're gonna she's not a morning person so i was like you're gonna get out of bed at four in the morning and she said yeah and so yeah this last weekend we set an alarm and she was a trooper she popped right up and we got in the truck we had everything ready to go Uh because i'm not a morning person either so (laughs) um so yeah we went out and uh we were out before daylight and unfortunately we didn't hear any gobbles and Mm. uh the the place i was hunting two weeks ago you know there was frost in the morning sure now, when we woke up on Sunday morning, it was 70 degrees and humid at 4 a.m. Uh-huh. So we went out, and the mosquitoes were 
atrocious. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was not pretty. And she hung in there real well, but, you know, it, it was like, it, it was so bad, it was like, we're next to like a mile square swamp. Sure. And it was one of those things where I was like, I couldn't, I thought maybe I heard a gobble way off in the distance about daylight. Right. But the, hum, like, just the background <laughs> the whine of mosquitoes, <laughs> it was hard to hear over. Right. So, you know, we, we sat for maybe 45 minutes, and in the spot I was in, if we don't get them off the roost, you're pretty much out of luck anyway. So mm-hmm. we didn't hear any gobbles, and I was like, you know, we there could be a quiet one sitting there that might fly down, but she was miserable, and I didn't want to leave too bad of a taste in her mouth, so we packed So when you came early. back and, like, you know, you get back to the house, and her mom asked you about mm-hmm. it, like, what'd she say? Uh, I think she said, you know, she, like I said, she started off with a great attitude and right. it was just like that last five minutes, you know, maybe if I would have left five minutes earlier, it would have been really good, but sure. you know, she was, she was glad she did it. Sure. And, uh, I, I promised her, uh, next year we'll go earlier yeah. <laughs> when there's no mosquitoes yet. So well, I think exposure to those things and I yeah. get, if nothing else, just time with her father. You know, oh, no doubt. No what doubt. a cool thing for that. Yeah. I want to try and get in before like female puberty and they hate me i want to pack in all of the like awesome stuff i can you know just i, I feel like it's it's building a foundation you know just for a relationship with you yeah i think well i mean i think that that looking back on my childhood mm-hmm. it was i think everything is the long game mm-hmm. i think that my parents had this sort of profound wisdom that as a child i had zero appreciation for but yeah why would you anything in life that turns out to be great Mm -hmm. is usually something that takes a long time to develop. And I think that that is, is anything, whether that's like athletic prowess Mm -hmm. or skill in hunting or, you know, some sort of, uh, like knowledge base, but also relationships, especially with a child, you have to put things out there and it's like planting an acorn. You just put it in the ground and you tend to it, but you can't force it and it's going to take time. But if you if you do that and you take the necessary steps, but you're also willing to invest the time, eventually you get that oak tree. I agree. And kids are definitely the ultimate expression of that, I think. You know, I totally it's agree with that. Because it takes 25 years to figure out what you really got. Mm-hmm. No, it's... <laughs> or it's, longer, you know. Well, and it's just, you have to be willing, like, you know, God, the fact that my father didn't strangle me on any number of hundreds of occasions to this day is a mystery to me because Likewise. he would have absolutely been justified. Yeah. You know, and the courts right. would have acquitted him on the spot. They would have right. been like, this is clearly <laughs> reasonable. Right. So... I, I totally get it. Yeah. And I think that I'm always kind of, you know, we're obviously diving down a little bit of the parental you know, rabbit hole here, but mm-hmm. when people like just plop their kids down in front of like the TV or the iPad endlessly, right. you're like, why did you have kids? The whole point should be, right. in my opinion, and I know in yours, to to take them and to experience things with them and to teach them. For sure. I, I, however, I completely understand the temptation. Oh, for sure. Because kids... You know, I got three kids that are kind of spread apart in age, and it's like a, a lot of different kinds of problems all day long. Right. You know, and sometimes you're like, I just need a half hour. Yeah, no, I mean. Everybody shuts the hell up so I can like, you know, not even do anything exciting, like do the dishes. Right. <laughs> you know. Well, I was down at my sister's place yesterday, and she's got. <laughs> so I understand got... the temptation, but it's like, I, I totally agree that we try and very much minimalize that. And, yeah. You know, because I want to raise, I'm proud that I have three little girls 
who like go out in the brush and yeah. like come back with worms and yeah. bugs and frogs and aren't squeamish and 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 aren't afraid to just go outside and do something imaginative and get dirty and to well, me when I see that I feel like I'm I must be doing something sort of right. Well more than that like I mean your daughters are their minds are very active. Like you look in their eyes and there's a there's a very there's a brightness to their eyes. Not like we yeah. laugh but like that's that's not I'm not kidding like I've seen recently you know I was you know sitting in the airport and there was a, a family there, mom, dad, three kids, mm-hmm. all of them glued to their phones. And the kids just had this glazed over look in their eyes, kind of like slack jawed. All right. Can I tell you that in an airport, I would give those parents. Oh, no. 100%. You, but you understand what I'm saying? Like, I've just met, uh, like, and I'm yeah, not. An again, airport's different than every sure, day at home. For you know? sure. But I just think that, you know, when you have an opportunity to, to sort of spark a kid's imagination. I think that that's like absolutely always, nothing better. Always a good thing to do. Yeah. So, what are you going to be doing with the summertime besides uh, being dead? <laughs> well, I'm going fishing with you in a couple of weeks. I'm so excited for that. I'm. Uh, I'm so excited. Yeah, for that. I got uh, my oldest. I'm taking on a a few day uh, like portage in canoe camp trip mm-hmm. in June. So hopefully we get some decent weather and bugs aren't too terrible. Could yeah. be rough. Yeah, northern Wisconsin. So, we didn't get out at all last year. Fishing, no, you and I. My boat never got wet last summer. That's a shame. It was brutal, brutal. Well, I'm glad we're not going to have that problem this no, year. No, we're gonna we're gonna make we're like the rest of the world. <laughs> we're making up for a lost year right now. So right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. We're gonna go see my folks. Do some fishing up there. Um, like I said, I think we're gonna bring the family down to Milwaukee here and mm-hmm. do some of the zoo and kid family stuff. And I don't know, try and spend a lot of time outside. You gonna do any scouting this uh, this summer for the fall, as far as hunting or anything like that? I don't have much in the way of scouting plan now. Okay. Nope. Okay. Yeah. We still got to get you. Uh, we still got to get you down to Illinois. Yeah, yeah it'd be fun. Oh, invitation stands, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna keep making it until you take me up on it. Illinois to make those non-resident tags a little more reasonable. That's the truth of it. Wisconsin's the truth a place to come as a non-resident. Unfortunately, I'm a resident. Shh. <laughs> don't tell anybody that, right? right? Edit that. Cat's out of the bag, right? <laughs> no, it's ridiculous. Wisconsin, sorry, out-of-staters, but needs a jack-up. It's non-resident. <laughs> well, they're just behind all the other states, you know? All the other white-tail destination states are like four or $500, and Wisconsin, I think, is still like are all 150 bad? 160 all bucks, that, They're not tails? all that bad. Well, I guess, what, like, what would we consider a destination state? Well, I'm th- saying, like, Iowa, Illinois, you okay. know, the, kind of the big buck states, I guess, yeah, outside of that, I'm not real well versed on tag prices for whitetails. Indiana's but... not bad. What's that? Indiana's not bad. Yeah, I don't know if Indiana has that reputation yet, though, to justify it. I'm not saying there aren't big deer there. Maybe not. Good hunting. Maybe but, not. Uh, I feel like you know Iowa and Illinois, Wisconsin, kind of have nationwide big whitetail reputation. What are your thoughts on? This is you know something I've been meaning to ask you is like, what are your thoughts on where whitetail hunting in Wisconsin is going to go in the next? decade do you have concerns i know that i do um yeah most of my concerns are already in the rearview mirror though okay Um, so well i just mean like the genies out of the bottle as far as like this is a controversial topic but uh baiting you know okay i think baiting is uh 
got out of hand in the 90s. It was mm-hmm. never a thing before that. Uh, but now it's kind of become the standard. Mm-hmm. Property sizes are getting smaller. You know, where I grew up, uh, places that used to be big chunks of land, you know, 160 acres, yeah. all got chopped into 40s or even 20s. Mm-hmm. And then there's like two or three guys hunting on 40 acres. Mm-hmm. Um and it turned into a pissing contest, you know? Mm-hmm. The neighbors are baiting, so we got to bait. Otherwise, they got all the deer. And right. then it just, you know, um, there's laws now about how much bait you can put out. I think it's five gallons or something of corn. Mm-hmm. It's basically why we even nobody, have those. Nobody, why we even have those laws is to me preposterous because how could you possibly regulate not, it? You can't enforce you can't, it. You can't enforce it, so no. why do you even have this out the there? The DNR does fly. Uh, they, they've literally written tickets from airplanes. Because yeah. the piles of corn are so big, you can see them from the air. <laughs> but, I mean, they're not going to get everybody. And it's just really, to me, it's diminished the act of hunting deer and turned it into kind of shooting deer. Yeah. You know? Well, you but, and I. I mean, I think, again, this is 20-plus years ago that this started and really got gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, that was my biggest concern for a long time. And I think that it's just become part of the culture with, uh, you know, not just the residents, but out-of-state hunters coming in because they can bait, and right. it's just entrenched now. Do you then, think that there's, you know, one of the things that I am always try to be cognizant of is not splitting the hunting community into factions, right? I agree, yes. I know Which that, I just like, did by well, no, I trash mean, and bait. No. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think, so you and I share very very similar outlooks on what is hunting for you and i it's i don't think i I don't think sacred is too strong a word for the role it plays in our lives and in our friendship and in you know a lot of the things that we've done together and we we carry with it sort of an ethos of of what it means to be a hunter but a conservationist a steward of the land all these kinds of things. But at the same time, and I'm, I, I don't bait. I'm not a fan of baiting. I don't hunt over bait. I wouldn't hunt over bait. Like, you know, you and I had a conversation last year where I was in a situation where someone actually did me, was trying to do me a solid, right? We were out on public right. land put you out over bait and pot. put me out over bait. And yeah. I had deer come in and I, I couldn't even pick up my bow. Yeah. I just couldn't. I just watched the deer. I just, yeah. it felt so for me personally, personally, wrong, I wouldn't do it. Right. However, that's me personally, and I'm not going to tell somebody else that they shouldn't do it. I completely agree, uh, especially with whitetails, but to a, my um, counterpoint would be uh, for whitetails, disease transmission. No, I, and again. Okay. And then that's where, you know, my old piss and match against baiting kind of got new life is that you know this is a cwd is a real problem in wisconsin now in certain parts and it's not going anywhere right and i think the captive deer industry which is probably now a way worse problem for the cwd front than baiting um but still baiting is a factor you're concentrating deer where they're exchanging bodily fluids in a very small area and eating out of the same piles and it's a problem well, that's, that's, I think, the real conversation to have is you can debate the nuance of hunting ethics all mm-hmm. you want. And that's, you know, who's right, who's right, wrong, but disease whatever. Transmission but disease is transmission completely is a separate is, issue. This is science. Right. This is right. clearly, like, this is a black and white thing. And that's right. one of the, the concerns. 
and for me, I think what was curious, and you and I have spoken with a lot of the same people and kind of run in the same circles as it comes to all this, is how much of a blind eye was turned to that for so long to the point where it's a problem now that I, I don't know that there is a solution to it. It's, to CWD in general? Correct. Oh. I mean, yeah, over I by like Dane and Iowa counties, they're mm-hmm. talking about the fact that you have a greater than 50% prevalence in the herd right. there right wow agreed and and yeah. what are you going to do with that I, I, like what can you do with that i don't know no, i don't know because if you are a person who is uh leery of the risks of chronic wasting to yourself and your family by eating meat of an infected deer what are you going to do exactly you, you can submit that deer for testing But by the time you get those results back, you probably have that deer cut and wrapped it in your freezer, and maybe you've eaten some of it already. Or not even that. I mean, I had that last year. I had two or three venison meals before I got my test results back, and I don't hunt in a high-prevalence area, so I wasn't really concerned. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a a thought. And, again, for me, I might not worry about it, but I'm feeding that meat to my children. Right. You know? And so I do think about it. And also, I think if you pay attention to the science and you see how the trend has been over the years where it first was like, yeah, you know, just make sure you remove the lymph nodes and don't eat mm-hmm. the spinal tissue right. and you'll be fine. Right. And now they're like, don't eat any part of the deer at all. Yeah. And I think that's an overcautious approach. But, perhaps. Perhaps. But if you, if you are concerned about it personally, yeah. then, you know, and you want to abide by that, that's fine. But what are you doing with that deer? If you're processing it yourself, which I, you know, I cut all my meat on the kitchen counter where I exactly. do all my cooking. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a concern. Or I, I think where about you, it. Where you, I'm, not, I'm do... not worried. I'm not panicky about it, but sure. I, I have thoughts in the back of my mind. I'm concerned about it. And also I think that like, if you are not processing your own deer, I mean, we do, right? Mm-hmm. But if you take your deer to a processing facility, oh yeah, if your deer is clean, Right. It doesn't mean it didn't go through the same grinder as it did another deer that wasn't. Right. Exactly. And if you understand the science, like, man. More so than that, the you know, the, the bone saws, you know, the meat right. saws and things like that. Like, you know, I laugh because <laughs> the first time I took a deer in for CWD testing, I went to a DNR station. Right. And they have a testing thing. And it's like you have to, you know, you put the head of the deer basically in a, in a bag and you tag it with your information. And you put it in a freezer. Well, if you want to keep the antlers off your deer, you can. You know, if you just want to cut the skull plate off. Right. And they had a like a, a bone saw sitting on the side of the cooler. So I'm like sitting there sawing through the brain right. of my deer. Right. Saying, how many other brains right. did this saw go through? Right. right. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I completely agree. I just, yeah. it's, I think, and, you know, again, if the science, the fact that it's a, a prion disease. Right. And yeah, that you stuff is, you, you, I mean, right. unless you're looking to incinerate it at some insane right. temperature, I think it's, I don't know what it is, but it's like a, a thousand degrees or something like that. Right. Unless you've got an industrial blast furnace. Yeah. What do you do with oh, that? you're not. You know, and you can wash your kitchen counter. You can wash your knives that you cut meat with. Back your truck. The, your, yeah, yeah. You know, your, your, your kitchen counter. Your pants. Yeah. What, anything else, right. your boots that you got the stuff on. Right. So I think it's, I'm just surprised that. You know, I was listening to, and I'm going to get Brian, and Brian, forgive me, I'm going to get, I cannot remember the gentleman's name, but interestingly, he works for the U.S. Geologic Service, in which the first time I heard that the, you know, foremost expert on the disease worked for the U.S. Geologic Service, it didn't make sense to me, but somehow it falls under his purview. But I've met the gentleman before and emailed back and forth with him, and, you know, he's like, yeah, he's like, 
I wouldn't be alarmist, but I wouldn't not be paying attention to it. And the fact that so many people are just so dismissive of it, I think is probably yeah. in the end going to come and bite us. I mean, it's <clears throat> uh, you know, it's like any situation these days. If you have an opinion, you can go <laughs> online and in and a share minute it. and a half. Well, not just share it. You can find a hundred thousand people, com- you know, claiming to be experts to back it up. Mm. So yeah, I think we it's do like a, everything need to do else. a little bit more of a litmus test on that whole expertise thing. Right. I, no, I, I, don't I agree with you strongly there. on that. Right. So I hope that there's a shift in the wind, especially here in our in our home state, as far as the need to look after the land and the water. I think that for way too long there was not, and I think that. We're seeing the, I just think that that's just people in general. You know, you look anywhere, and that's one of the things that always really sort of breaks my heart is how humans, wherever they go, seem to just destroy or muddy up anything that they touch. Well, being short-sighted is easy, you know? And if you're profit-driven, that's another thing. Oh, absolutely. You know, if you are, uh, if you own a company and your bottom line is the bottom line, and then if you're a policymaker, you know, the short term, quick, please everybody kind of things are, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's always the easiest route. It's amazing to me how pervasive that is that, for example, like you were mentioning, you know, like uh, captive deer farms, mm-hmm. there's no way that that's a good idea for anything. I, I'm like, I, I don't even want to talk about it okay <laughs> because well then I'll, I'll i'll touch on it briefly and then we'll then we'll veer I, off I, the topic i feel so strongly about it and it just it, I'll, I'll say briefly there's the disease issues cwd we talked about bait transmission natural transmission in nature correct cwd is carried by trucks yep cwd is because of captive deer farming the reason CWD is across the whole country is all the captive deer industry. And it's such a small slice. It's not like it's driving the economy. This isn't drilling for oil. This mm-hmm. isn't energy independence. It's deer farms. Right. And it just frustrates me to no end. Well, it's I- like it's such a n- tiny niche thing. And then just fundamentally to me, it's just taking the essence of a wild animal and turning it into a farm animal, yeah. and it grosses me out, man. Well, it's what it I is. It. What <laughs> it is is, well, I mean, in a certain in a certain way, and you know, we're probably going to ruffle some feathers with this, but you know what? I'm, yeah. Let's do it. Well, if you want to, like I said, that's let's, part let's, of why I don't want to talk about captive deer farms is because I don't want to like a go off and sound like an idiot or <laughs> a lunatic. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 well, not we'll try, always we'll a popular. Keep, we'll it's not a popular keep, opinion, but well, I, I, but I think it's I think it's something that's worth talking about, and we'll try and yeah. keep our hands on the reins so the horse doesn't run completely away okay. with this one. That's but, your job. You're the host. That, oh God, man, we're in trouble. <laughs> but um, it's I, I think my even outside the disease transmission and all the rest of it, the, one of the biggest problems that I have with it is it's fake. It's a fraud. It is absolutely. It is a complete, unnatural representation of something for nothing other than people's ego. Vanity. That's ego. it. That's all it is. I completely agree. That's you're all not it is. Hunting that deer. I don't like, care if it's loose in a hundred acres. You're just. It can't go like, anywhere. Guess what? A hundred and sixty yeah. inch whitetail. Right. Come on, man. Like that is the reason that you have things like Boone and Crockett or Pope mm-hmm. and Young is because those deer were such rarities right that it was 
it was really like finding a unicorn. And it was one of those things where it was worth recording where did this animal come from, at what time, and those kinds of things, because it was such something so special. Right. And people just got, you know, a hair up their ass about wanting to be able to brag about, hey, look yeah. at me, look at me. Well, outdoor, and someone outdoor else... television didn't do any service. It, you know, it turned into the horn porn thing, and and you're, it's always going to attract those certain kind of people who are only interested in the results and not interested in the process. Right. And, and which is that, that, I think, what you just said can be applied to almost anything in life. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And those are just the kind of people that I find myself kind of most... Re- Repellent. Repulsed. 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 Yeah, man, I, that's exactly, that's <laughs> yeah. exactly what like I was going to say. Where the results matter more than the process, I, I just don't well, have not anything even that. in common The fact that you think that you can buy something that, right, for, right. you know, and I've said it in the past where I, you know, and maybe this is extreme, but that 90% of people go hunting and 10% of people are hunters. Right, absolutely. And you and me and all the guys and girls that we know and respect that go, that are hunters. Mm-hmm. There's seasons that go by where you come up snake eyes. Yeah. But you're still so grateful for having had that season. For the Absolutely. Going time. snake eyes is kind of my specialty. <laughs> but like <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. And if you I mean if you read and you know the, the first thing that comes to my mind is like Fred Bear. Right. The hunter's hunter. Right. The man that did it all with a recurve. Mm-hmm. The world over. When that guy got into it, how many seasons? When he writes in his, you know, in his in his books and his journals and his memoirs, did that guy strike out? Oh Learn, yeah, right. Oh, that's bow hunting. Absolutely, but the willingness to do that, the Absolutely. willingness yeah, to yeah, strike yeah. out—it's a life lesson, man. The willingness to fail, the willingness to put in tons of effort with no guarantee of success—it's all that's all part of the point. And and also the earning it. Like I've heard this right. conversation before too, is. If you were out on a seven-day hunt, and the first morning you walked out and there was whatever, this phenomenal whatever you were, there you go, um, deer, elk, moose, anything you want, would, would you take it that first day? And the guys that I know and that I consider like in my circle are conflicted about that because, yes, obviously yeah. we're here to hunt. And here's the animal, and we don't want to waste an opportunity. Right. But at the same time, once yeah, that animal's the... on the ground, your hunt is over. Agreed. And it's it's almost like Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. Is Christmas morning better than the Christmas season, than the anticipation of Christmas? And I would argue that it's not. I agree. I would argue that the thrill of the hunt is infinitely more enjoyable and important. Not important is the wrong word to use because I take the harvesting of an animal with a tremendous amount of solemnity, but the thrill, the anticipation. Absolutely. The whole experience being outside. Absolutely. Is, is unquantifiable for me. Right. And you know, I, my only counterpoint would be, uh, I've hunted long enough and hard enough that I know how how bad things can get. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and that when you when you hunt over a lifetime, you realize that maybe seeing that big elk opening day and killing it, maybe that year's hunt, right, isn't as satisfying. But 
I think of the years behind Correct. where you couldn't buy a look at an animal. Right. You know, I've been on seven elk bow hunts in the West, mm-hmm. you know, unguided public land with a bow. Right. And I have n- not killed an elk with a bow. Mm-hmm. If I see an elk this fall, mm-hmm. 20 minutes outside of camp. I'm letting it go. <laughs> There's not going to be any hesitation. Right, right. right? But, you know, I wholeheartedly agree. Obviously, I wouldn't go and spend, you know, the 10 weeks or whatever I've spent over the last years uh, in the Elk Mountains if I didn't enjoy the experience. I think it's about a big part of it. Yeah, I think that what people miss as far as the deer farms and the thinking that the size of an animal's antlers or whatever is the point I think what people like that are missing, and I think I actually, while I certainly scorn it, I also sort of pity it in the fact that you're really missing out on the point. Absolutely. You're missing out on the story. You're missing out on the experience and what that does to you as a person in and your life. And the camaraderie, like... The times that you and I have shared out in wild places are some of my most cherished memories because I know what it means to me, right? which so, goes beyond words, but also to know that like my buddy's there and I know what it means to him. And to have that as a shared experience, I think makes it so much more special. Absolutely. I obviously wholeheartedly agree with you. So here's a question. Is the guy who let's say he's not an experienced hunter but he's interested in hunting and he decides that the way to go for him is to go kill a 200 inch buck on a high fence operation in wisconsin is that just a person's wired that way uh he's results oriented or is that a guy you could you think could with more experience and some people talking to him could see the light I would this say, is just this is this is a rhetorical question. No, I'm not would, like asking for an the, answer. I'm, I'm just say it's the latter. an interesting thought. I don't know. Well, one, it has to do with the person individually, but two, I would also say the latter. Now, you and I both came to this place in our lives as far as the importance of hunting to us from vastly different points on the compass. Mm-hmm. You grew up with it. Your father right, was a right. hunter. Yeah. Your father taught you how to hunt. Yeah. Like, and it was just part. And presumably, your grandfather taught him how to hunt. Right. If I was, am I correct? Uh, yeah, well, you know, that was like in the 50s and 60s, so there wasn't really deer hunting sure. per se as, as there is now, especially right. not like now. You know, seeing a deer was a really big deal. Right. Um, but yeah, my grandpa was an avid small game squirrel and a rabbit guy and a fisherman. Sure. So, you know, and I I come to it from the other side. You know, my mm-hmm. father's an avid, out, uh, very avid sort of outdoorsman, but not in, not a hunter at all. Right. Never been hunting. Right. Um, and so I I'm basically self-taught. As far as all of this. Well, and I got a lot of respect for you for figuring out uh, not just the how, but the why. You know, I mean, that's cool. That's part of why we get along. You know, I think, I, but I think it also has to do with where are people. So if you get taught by someone like your father, mm-hmm. presumably you're taught the ethics of it and the why from a young age. To you're, a point. To a point. <laughs> My dad is more of a, a pragmatic person than I am. He's kind of, you know, he, he has a, a deep-seated set of his own personal ethics. Sure. But they don't really have anything to do with what the outside world tells him. It's kind of his experience. Okay. And his, you know, he has a deep respect for the animals. He loves the animals, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he started bow hunting in like the mid-60s. Sure. When, 
you know, it wasn't really a thing. There right. weren't many. I think he said the first boat license he bought, he was one of four or five licenses sold in his county. Yeah. In his county. Right. In Wisconsin. <laughs> right. But also, you I know? think, you know, so he, he, he has a more pr- pragmatic approach, but I feel he gave me the foundation where I could, I just have more of a, uh, philosophical spirit, maybe, uh, where okay. I, where I delved more into the why am I doing this and and why, how should I do this and is this even right or wrong to do? You know, you know that's a very interesting point that you make as far as the pragmatism to it, and it that actually just sort of triggered a memory in my head, and it also makes me want to turn the spotlight on myself for a second and say that I have the good fortune of being able to be philosophical. What I mean by that is this. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was a, an amazing fisherman. But he grew up in a time when you fished so that you could eat. Absolutely. And if you caught a fish, that was a meal. And oh, it yeah, yeah, you wouldn't yeah. go hungry. We... <laughs> you and I grow up in this time now where that not is not hungry. an issue. And I also, so I think that it's important for me to sort of take a step back and examine, like, the great good fortune I have to ha- to be able to have the perspective that I have. If people, like, for example, I've been out west and in some, some pretty rural areas, mm-hmm. and I got a buddy out there that lives out in western Colorado, and he and I have had some, some pretty involved conversations as far as our thoughts on a lot of the same subjects over the campfire. And there are people out there that are, I don't think destitute, would be too strong a word. Right. And they openly ignore the... Yeah, game laws. And, the game laws yeah, yeah. and uh, I the... Mean, where I grew up in a very poor county up north. It's no different there. Right. You know, there's people that are... So who's to say, right? And huh. while I definitely think that, that, the, that, there, that those laws are important and that those laws are in place to preserve our natural resources and that those, in my opinion, those laws should be followed and abided by right i also have food in the refrigerator absolutely so i speak from a position of privilege right and so i need to sort of couch what i say by acknowledging that Mm -hmm. and i think that you know there's a lot of people out there that are very much of the this is my opinion and i think i'm right for this and like okay maybe no shortage but let's let's examine where you're coming from (laughs) right right yeah i understand and i you know i went through a I grew up in a pretty subsistency household, you know, we ate a lot of fish and game and had a garden and things like that. And then, you know, I kind of grew up with that attitude and, uh, and then I got really into fly fishing trout when I lived in the, you know, in the driftless outstanding trout fishing. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't love to eat trout. I like a couple now and then, but I don't need a freezer full. I don't think they freeze that well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go out and you catch 40 trout in a day. And I, I got really into it for a while. Fly right. fishing, I was just having fun doing it. I enjoyed spending my free time doing that. Sure. And then I, I kind of came, started coming full circle where I was like, you know, playing with your food. You know, <laughs> like, why am I catching all these trout just to throw them back in the creek? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I, I understand the catch and release ethic. Um, mm-hmm. Let somebody else catch it. You know, it's a renewable resource. But uh, I'm kind of at the point now where catch and release fishing is kind of... I get bored with it more easily. Sure. And there's also... I'm you not know, saying I'm done doing it. <laughs> you know? Well, but you know, uh, smallmouth are another good example. We're going smallmouth fishing in a few yep. weeks. And uh, um, 
I think smallmouth are they're pretty good on the table. They're I think they're a little underrated, mm-hmm. but they're still not my favorite fish. And mm-hmm. I'd just as soon catch a few on a fly and let them go, and then kill a couple of walleyes. Right. You know. It's interesting how that process, that sort of mental evolution, comes with the time oh, that you're absolutely. out of the field. And I, you know, I'm not an old man. Right. I, my opinions may change yet. One of my favorite one of my favorite lines show that I particularly enjoy was. You are not an old man yet, but you are not. You are no longer a young man. Right. <laughs> right? I find I find that particularly applicable. Yeah. Yep. To where I'm at. No doubt. You know, uh, in life right now. Do you think that um, you know you were in, you were, you mentioned like if a guy was just getting into it now, like where would he end up? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that has to do with the resources available to someone as far as how are they going to learn. Yeah, it's and, hard. I mean, I, like I said, I give you a lot of credit for picking this up on your own. It's, it's the learning curve for, you know, fishing is, would be difficult. Hunting would be, and obviously there's tons of online resources sure. now. It's not like it was 10 or 15 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever. Yeah. But um, reading a, some dude's Instagram crap is not the same thing as going out and just busting your butt right to figure it out you can read all you want about shooting a deer or a turkey or whatever but going out and doing it is a much different thing well you're gonna have to like i had to bounce off a lot of wickets yeah sort of oh yeah coming down coming down the slope yeah to kind of to arrive where i'm at right and you know i was very fortunate in the fact that i just happened to run into uh a couple of people that yeah you had good mentors that right mentored me and also yeah. i kind of knew for me to cheapen something like the, the that's always just been completely against the grain of who i am right like the if something's fake or bought or or just not genuine mm-hmm. i just i can't like i just can't stomach it um but you know one guy in particular that i've mentioned on the podcast before uh guy by the name of scott um you know it just man i tell you what a dude made out of saddle leather and and bullet casings i mean just a hard hard man but a good man and i remember him taking me out when i was living down in central illinois and i had an opportunity and he brought me to this this area this property and he said you know if you're interested you know you're welcome to hunt here and I, i didn't know what i was doing the highlight reel of my bonehead moves as a hunter, I would say the first couple of years, yeah. would be a yeah. YouTube sensation. Right. I remember talking to a buddy of mine, and I mean, from from the when I would hunt to what I would bring to how I would do things to how I would set up. I mean, it right. was all wrong. Well, all wrong. Here's another huge thing you had going for you then is if you had someone who gave you access to a place to I'm hunt. Not, because absolutely correct. I, you know, if I was starting out now, like even as a person who grew up doing it and kind of knows what to look for and understand, you know, and there's all the resources now with Onyx and the, you know, the, the online mapping systems that are incredible, but uh, I mean, access, mm-hmm. it's just so hard. You know, I grew again, where I grew up child of the eighties, grew up in the woods on 40 acres, but like I could literally walk in any direction as far as my 10 year old legs could carry me right. for an entire day and nobody cared. Right. Well, I think that, <laughs> and that just that doesn't exist anymore. 
Which is a huge problem, I think. Yeah, I mean, in 30 years, you know, it's it's gotten so different. I know you, I know you and I are both huge fans of literature. And I remember, and I'm struggling to recall where I read this, but it was, it actually might even be, I think it's in uh, the Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. And he was talking about how he was at a certain river and there were two, you know, young teenage guys coming down the river mm. in a canoe, you know, going for, you know, a couple day adventure or whatever. And he goes, I was happy to see them do it, but I was heartbroken in the fact that these young men were basically only taking a small, were only able to take a small bite of what the American adventure used to be. Oh, absolutely. Because of that. Like, yeah. you can only go down a five-mile stretch of river, which five yeah. miles maybe today seems like a huge stretch. It's public land. You get access. You go in, you go out. You oh, can I camp. Know. You can do whatever you want. But 100 years ago, I mean, just 100 years, mm-hmm. that could be – you could go the whole river. You could go 60, 70, 80, 100, 200 miles. Yeah. No problem. Right. And there was no one to say, you can do this, you can't do that. Right. I mean, I one of my favorite stories is the first time I went to Montana. Um. You know, we're in eastern Montana, and uh, my buddy out who lives out there picked us up, and we're uh, we're heading back to his place, and we're like, oh, you know, my my friend who had come out there with me, we we're going mule deer hunting, and we're like, oh, we should, you know, we should hit the range, and uh, make just make sure that the you know our rifles are sighted in, didn't get jostled during the trip. Sure. And my buddy who lived out in eastern Montana just started laughing, and we're like, what's so funny? He's like, the range. He's like, man, this is Eastern Montana. He's <laughs> like, this the is range. the range. Yeah. He's like, you just, just let me know when you want me to pull over. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just start shooting, you know? Yeah, yeah. But but growing up, I mean, the contrast between Eastern Montana and the suburbs of Chicago, or even Milwaukee for that fact, I mean, it, yeah. it, it, you might as well be on a different planet. No doubt. And, and to think that there was a time where that's how the majority of the country was yeah. really makes you stop and think. And when you're like, do we need just this endless sea of bureaucracy and i know you and i are both i mean we're laughing we're sort of smirking right now nobody can see it but the answer is no yeah the answer is no and we're sure in my opinion we're surely not better off for it yeah it's a lot to unpack but uh i mean yes and no i mean unfortunately the only reason anyone needs bureaucracy ever is because of like the three percent of the population who is going to be an asshole. Yeah. You know, take advantage, leave trash, do stupid shit with guns, you know. Yeah. That's the only reason we have we need laws. Yeah. You know, it's not for the majority of people who can take care of themselves and, you know, behave like grown-ups. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'd like to think it's 97% of us, but yeah. I don't know well, that it you, is. Well, okay, you might be right about that, but <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? It's like the bad, the worst actors are always not the majority, but I don't know. Bad behavior shows up as outsized. I feel like no, now. it's true. It's it's always you know fortuitously it's always the minority, but yeah. you know it, it does seem to you know yeah. get center stage, which is also unfortunate. When uh, when you like look kind of towards the immediate future. When it comes to all the things that like you and I love and hold so dear, do you are you hopeful? Are you pessimistic? Like where do where do you come down on all that kind of stuff? I make a conscious effort to try and be hopeful. Okay. Uh, because I have kids, you know, sure. and it, 
if I think it's all hopeless, then I don't know. I go to a dark place, man. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, really, I, no, I, I, I agree with that. I think I, that I don't think, you know, I'm not naive. No one grows up in the same world that their parents grew up in, you know, for better and for worse. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, for, if we're talking specifically about, you know, wild places, outdoor places, right. It's not going to be the same. Like I said, in 30 years since I was a kid, it's not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there's some hope in the in the fact that people are starting to acknowledge mm-hmm. that maybe we don't need a strip mall on every corner. There are places that are God. worth preserving. There are places that are worth uh, cleaning up where we have made errors in the past. You That's know, a big I mean, thing. Uh, there, I think a lot more could be done in that regard. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but you know, I think there is there's a reason to have some hope. Um, do you see do you see a sort of coming together, or I do, but I'm interested if you do, coming together of groups that perhaps in the past would have been seen as uh, adversarial. Uh, that maybe separate at a minimum, adversarial perhaps at, at the extreme. What I mean by that is, you know. You wouldn't necessarily put like, I don't know, hunters and rock climbers in the right. same category, right. right? But, but there is a lot of common ground there, and I think that yeah, the bringing together I think of they those be brought together. exactly, yeah, yeah, you because know, again, it's different priorities. It's no different than within the hunting community. You know, you like to bait deer, and I don't. I, obviously, you don't, but I'm right using that. You know, yeah, another person likes to do that. I don't. Instead of getting in a pissing match with each other how can we you know it, it's like anything in life man how can we, how can we find some common ground you yep. know i mean i think we have more in common than we do i think different. that people and it's have the had... same in politics and whatever yes. else you know i mean f- just like can the grown-ups sit down and have a rational conversation instead of just screaming at each other well, i agree like the whole wholeheartedly anyone who likes recreating in the outdoors should be on the same team you know, I, I know that there's a an attitude in the, you know, mountain biking, hiking community that, oh, you know, the hunters are out there trying to destroy wildlife. You know, there's a stereotype of that. And it's and sometimes if, when they see certain examples, it's probably not unwarranted. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, again, it's the bad actors looking more outsized than they actually are. Yeah. We have a lot in common and we should care about the same kind of things, you know. And I think that the outdoor community that's not consumptive Uh, needs to acknowledge you know there's a lot of research coming out now about how you know animal patterns are affected by humans in nature if you're hiking down a trail and you think you're you know not interrupting wildlife you are you're stressing animals by pushing them away or kicking them up what you know especially in like winter time spring time when they're uh in not in good shape uh, you're stressing those animals out, and it can even cause mortality, you know? Mm-hmm. And they need to acknowledge that, and we should all be on the same team. Yeah, no, I I, I think that your, your point that we should all, regardless, you know, whether it be in, in this particular, in the, in the outdoor world or in anything, look for the common ground and look for the opportunities to work together. The divisiveness, I think, that recently in the past couple of years, I hope that people have had just a belly full of it at this point and have just it just been like this tastes like shit like i just don't want to be part of this right because you're not going to get anywhere 
like that's the thing too is like no can anyone finally acknowledge the fact that like we are just stuck in the mud up to our axles and spinning the wheels and going nowhere like just yelling need, at each other from yeah, across the canyon like yeah. let's just figure out everybody pump the brakes right. slow down and let's figure out what we do agree on mm-hmm. which is probably more than you think right and how do we start rowing collectively in that direction right like i would love to go to a, i would love to just get a thousand people in an auditorium of any walk of life and be like okay who's for dirty water right raise of hands right no one no <laughs> one's for dirty water right right whether it's because you don't want to drink it or you think it's bad for the earth or you're a fisherman and you want to fish clean fish, everyone agrees that clean water is the way to go. Right. Now, are there sort of economic implications of that? Sure. Definitely, yeah. Okay, that's fine. But do those economic implications, like, are, are they worth your health, the health of your children? Right. Probably not. It comes back to the short-term, long-term, though. Absolutely. You know? Like, it, oh, we can make money in the next 10 years. But then what, you know, I mean, look again, where I'm living now in the Green Bay area, it's, the, you know, it was a historically paper mill country. All the northern Wisconsin forests came down. They either went down the Mississippi or they were in the Fox River Valley. And it was paper production and PCBs, mercury, metals. They just spent, I should know this, I'm in environmental science. I don't remember what they spent, but I mean, literally dredging the PCB and mercury contaminated sediment out of the Fox River and Green Bay system was in the tens of millions of dollars. Well, I mean, I can't even and, fish the lake that my grandfather built a cabin on because right, of exactly that. Right, But it was, you know, and there there is something to be said for at some point people didn't understand that what they were pumping in there, but there was a long period of time where they knew perfectly well that what they were dumping into the river was no good. Well, I mean, look, I mean there was just no impetus to not do it. The, the short-term money was worth more than the long-term view. Well, and, even in recent... like now I mean, our, we're holding the bag paying for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, even like in the last five years, I mean, we went up to the lake, I want to say, four years ago. And when I... You know, I've been going up to this lake ever since I was born. Mm-hmm. And we had always known that there was fairly substantial algae blooms in the summer. Mm-hmm. But I had never really understood why. Yeah. Why are there these algae blooms? Egg runoff. Exactly. Yeah. Ag runoff. And four years ago, it got to the point I had never, it was, it was almost something biblical where the algae bloom was so thick that you would, you could, you you thought you could walk across it and it actually began to develop mold across the top of it. We're not talking about like a pond or even Mm -hmm. a small lake. We're talking about one of the largest lakes in the state of Wisconsin. And the smell that came off it was absolutely unbelievable. And I ended up calling the DNR. And I said, is anyone going to address this issue? Like, mm-hmm. whether it be from an economic standpoint or an ecologic standpoint, I mean, take your pick. How is this a good idea? Right. And we're still doing this? And I'm hoping that that's another reason for optimism in the future is that it's not, it's starting to catch on some of the better, you know, a lot of the problem is we're not dealing with family farms anymore, you know. Well, family farms are dying in Wisconsin. Another and problem. It's, yeah, it's it's turning into these big corporate mega farms. And, uh, yeah, but, you know, there are certain things like no-till, agriculture, cover crops, things like that. There's a big study going on right near my house in some of the farms there where it's all no-till. And, I mean, right. several hundred acres. And uh, the USGS has water monitoring stations. They're watching the water quality come off there. And right. 
I haven't looked into what the results are that they found, but I'm happy to see that because in Wisconsin, you know, especially the lower half of Wisconsin here, uh, agriculture is, it's the cornerstone of, you know, historically and still, are, you know, the economic base here is agriculture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have no problem with that. My mom grew up on a dairy farm. You know, I understand farmers, salt of the earth people for the most part, you know, yeah. and I don't, I don't want to handicap them or cripple them in any way. But I think there's, you know, there's things where you can use common sense and everyone can be a winner. Right. You know, we're, we don't have any shortage of food in America. Right. You know, we're doing okay. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> uh, that. And I think that, you know, looking at it and saying, you know, maybe at the top end we can look at, you know, maybe you don't need this kind of profit. Maybe you can take 3% less. And maybe my river won't turn green in the summer. Yeah. You know? Well, I think it's one of those things where, you know, it's like technology. Anything used incorrectly is a negative, right? Yeah. Like the fact that I have, you know, on something the size of a cassette in my pocket, like every book, song, movie, answer to any question, library, whatever, is phenomenal. I agree. But do you let that become a crutch or do you use it to your advantage? Right. And when it comes to what we're talking about, we have the science. Yeah. How do we use the science to help everyone? How do we use the science to help the outdoorsman, to help the farmer? Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and we're in a complicated time in that. Very because much. Because of those pocket computers, like everything is changing so fast that I, I feel like culturally and even more fundamentally, just as human animals, we, we just haven't figured out how to make sense of it all. You know, well, you, to deal with the deluge of information. That's the thing. And, like, there, there's there been some very interesting studies that have come out that are talking about the fact that it's just rewiring our brains. Yeah, that's kind of scary. Very scary. Well, <laughs> technology has just outstripped, like, physiology and, evo- and, and biologic oh, evolution. absolutely. Absolutely. And so where does that go? Yeah, we can't – we're not equipped to process – we're not equipped to deal with that pocket computer. Exactly. You know? And it takes a lot of conscious effort. You know, because I, I'm not a technology guy, but I love information. Sure. You know, I love reading. And it's like, like you said, you can just pow, like a thought pops into my head. How does that work? I can find out, you know, and I love that. It's, but it's, it's also, it takes a, like self-awareness and self-control to be able to say, I love information, but I don't need information as soon as I think of it. Right. All day long. Right. That's not good for me. Exactly. You know, just on a personal level. Well, you, know, you have outside to have... of all this big picture solving the world's problems stuff, like on a personal level, it's hard to find that balance. You have to have that discipline, which is extraordinarily yeah, yeah, difficult and it's hard. to maintain. Absolutely. Right? And I think that, you know, one of the things that I think, I guess I would, I'm going to go back to personally and also in sort of in, in our circle, is the now i think growing recognition of the i don't even want to say the importance but the necessity of slowing things down absolutely that's and, something i'm trying to do and stepping away yeah yep technology is great but as you just said like we as an animal are not designed to to accommodate it absolutely not and i what i don't think people were aware of before but i think people are becoming increasingly aware of now is the fact that it is beginning to have a negative impact on no doubt us from a health standpoint from a quality of life standpoint and we, it just came on so fast that no one was able to prepare for it right but i think that 
Like I look at my phone less and less. That's good. And it's just like go outside, put your feet in the grass. Right. Like, you know, put your hands in the dirt. I completely understand it too. Like, if I want to like get out of the house and go for a walk, right? It takes some time, right? I need an hour or two, you know, if I want to drive somewhere and take a hike or go, you know, fishing or hunting. You know, you're talking about you need a couple hours or a day, right? Whereas if I'm sitting there and I'm bored at work, mm-hmm. it's no effort to pop open Instagram and right. scroll through what everybody else is doing, you know, right. and like get this little mental escape. And I think people get addicted to that little mental escape, you know, For sure. because it's, it's so low effort. Right. You know, I mean, I understand the temptation. For that, I think that people, again, it really is going to come down to self-discipline. It's going to come down Absolutely. to the individual. Absolutely. And, you know, I love to read. You love to read. You know what I do now? There's no place I don't go without a book. Yeah. I just, I don't. Way. I don't go without a book. Every place I go, going to the doctor's office, okay. Right. Going to the, you know, you're going to go get your oil change. You're going to have to wait for 20 minutes. Bring right. a book. Read a book. What are you reading now? Uh, Is that derailing us? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> uh, I'm actually reading um, Ranch Life and the Hunting Trail by Theodore Roosevelt. Oh, nice. It's, I've never read any of the Roosevelt classics. It should his, be on my list, though. You know, I think kind of this sort of circles back to what we were saying before as far as um, um Americans' general lack of their appreciation for their own history. Right. But, my God, man, I mean, I know that you and I are huge Teddy Roosevelt fans. Mm-hmm. But even beyond the scope of, of him as an outdoorsman, mm-hmm. he as a writer, his his gift with really? the written word is, I mean, so Teddy Roosevelt was Harvard-educated. You know, he obviously came from... Oh, from yeah, a, he was upper crust, east coast. Very much yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. But... And he's another one I think that you look at and, you know, it's always, I love people that break the stereotype. I love people sure. that are like, this is where I came from, but this does not define me. And, and I think that, that in all forms is to be admired. Absolutely. The willingness to break boundaries and to step into uncharted territory, right. I think, is inherent to the American spirit. Well, what better way to cross the divides that we've been talking about in culture, you know? Is that Get out truth? of your element. And- well, I think sort of taking a, a small sidestep here. I want to know when the nation of mountain men and gunslingers and cowboys became this sort of limp-wristed, like quarreling, like narrow-minded Comfort. cauldron of just sissies, for lack of a better word. I mean, like, that's not who I am. That's not who any guy that I know or respect right. is. That's not the circles I run with. That's not the men that I come from. And, like, I just find that to be disgusting. Yeah, 100 years of comfort. It's, again, you know what? Comfort's good, but... I understand. It's, it's we've gone it too some damn con- far. Wholeheartedly agree, but it takes some, again, some self-awareness and some self-examining uh, and maybe some outside influence to, to snap a lot of people out of that, you know? I also think what it takes is a little bit of, what do I want to say here? What is the standard? Like as a young man, you're growing up and like, I just think instinctively you're drawn to certain things, right? Sure. Why is the cowboy popular? Why are certain action movies popular, right? The alpha is popular because the alpha is instinctively what you want to be. Sure. You want to be the top dog. I think, uh, was awesome. I was listening to an interview one time with Kid Rock, and they're like, "Why'd you become a rock star?" He's like, 
He's like, are you kidding no. me, man? He's like, I became a rock star because I want to get the girl. You know? He's like, why are you the high school quarterback? Yeah, look he's at like, the guy. Well, I mean, he, he uh, oh, come on now. Come on. Well, he's not a beautiful man. I don't know. But uh, but you know what? I'm Like, that's, that's the whole point. And when it comes to not only, like, what you do, but how you do it, mm-hmm. you and I have been to places where, and again, we're sort of making a lot of circle backs here, but... Like where the guy's like, oh, check out this 170 inch deer right. I killed. Right. And you're like, how high was the fence you shot that thing behind? Right. And like, I I know you're a fake. You're a fraud. Like you like you got to go sit at the kids table. Right. It's not a real deer, and you didn't do a real hunt. Right. You got to go. We can sniff you out. But to your point, I think he thinks because that's on his wall, he's the alpha. Yeah, but you know what? It's like. It's like you think you're badass until you come against somebody who really is. Sure. And the truth will out. Like, that's the biggest thing. Right. I don't care what you say or how much you polish your image. Mm-hmm. When you come up against the real thing, you're going to know what the real thing is. That's just the way that it is. And I, I think that we need to go back to that. Show me the real thing. Show me the guy with the calluses on his hand. Like, I got a buddy that lives in central Illinois. Never went to college was a cab scout in the army, like the cop now, salt of the earth. Mm-hmm. This guy is self-educated on everything. Bought himself a hobby farm, learned carpentry, learned farming, learned plumbing, sure. learned electricity. The entire time, works two jobs. Yeah. And now, why are we not looking at people like that and tipping our hats? And instead we look to, what, celebrities? Right. Are you kidding me? I wholeheartedly agree. However, I, I don't know if that's necessarily a modern problem. Maybe it's more magnified now. But I think there's always been people who are going to take the initiative to do something special or something interesting. And yeah. there's going to be people who aren't. Okay. You know? I mean, sure, you talk about mountain men and cowboys and things like that, but... At the time of mountain men and cowboys, there were, were the still there were still people in yes. Manhattan, yes, you know, with white gloves on. But I think the doing point nothing. of <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. But what I'm saying is, like, no one wrote books about those people. No, no. So maybe there's a lesson to be learned in that. If you, I won't argue. Idolize and I feel like these people for their hardiness or their ingenuity or the adventure. Absolutely. Step into that doesn't have to be i'm not saying go live in the mountains right. but like embrace that a little bit a little bit and then what one of the funny thing is is like the and this is a bit of a stretch but but stick with me on this is if you read about for example like the mountain men their open-mindedness they were they were cultural pioneers too Oh, absolutely. All of the yeah, cultures, yeah, yeah. as far as the Native American cultures and the, and the different traditions or right. whatever, that they came into contact yeah, with. they assimilated to Native Americans absolutely. more than they, like, insisted that Native Americans assimilate with them. To absolutely. To a large degree, for sure. And the, all of the, the, you know, the first wave of explorer, well, maybe not the missionaries. <laughs> right. <laughs> they weren't, well, that they weren't was just so what I was going to say. But, because the missionary, like the French missionaries, again, in this area especially, were the, were definitely the first people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were ahead of the fur traders and everyone. I mean, right. what were like Marquette and LaSalle? I mean, they were like 1680s or something, 1600s when for you sure. I mean, they were, up on where they those were guys 100 were? years before even like fur traders. It was yep. insane. Those boys had... You know, men of the cloth with 
big brass balls, man. Huge brass ones, right? I don't disagree. I just think that, um, you know, you and you know, another thing that you and I have talked about a great deal is, man, there is a need for people to sort of step up and assume positions of like real leadership in any community these of days course. again whether it be the hunting community or like just your neighborhood anything community. new though again i think that's you know i think it's always been that way think so i yeah i mean i think people are people you know i mean yes we have enjoyed a long stretch of extreme comfort and low effort lifestyle yeah. in this country and you know in the western verse world right so maybe that's magnified it, but I, I still think people are people. And I think there's always been, you know, badasses and there's always been people content to just ride the wave and stay comfortable. I guess I agree with that. I think that it's interesting that our greatest adversary now, it seems, is comfort. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think that there's ever been a time before where no, it was like, wow, we have we're so comfortable <laughs> yeah. and we're so well off our biggest that that's problem actually is- a problem. Our biggest problem is we have too much to eat and not enough physical things to do. Right. Which anyone in the history of humanity prior to 100, 200 years ago would have been like, what? Exactly. What? I spend my whole day busting my ass Dude, I was <laughs> to get enough to eat, physically exhausting myself to feed my family, you know? <laughs> it was, I was just thinking about this last night before, well, you know, because I knew you were coming down today, and I was thinking about how ironic it is the fact that we go to the gym like right and pretend to do manual labor right? for an hour so that like we don't we turn pay into a block. money and don't I, dude, I'm, I'm i'm i love the gym i'm a i'm a gym rat yeah, yeah i go there all the time like i have to have it however like i was thinking about you know i'm looking around the room right now and there's pictures of like my grandmother's brothers working on the farm mm-hmm. those, those guys to go to the gym 16 were, hours a day yeah. if you had told them after that <laughs> that like we're gonna go and pick up yeah. plates of metal and guess what they would have shot you in the if face any of those men showed up here at my like they showed up at 44 years old and sat down across this table i wouldn't arm wrestle any nope. of them and i spent a little time in the gym myself <laughs> I, I would but say you know no I mean? thank you sir like, let me buy you a crazy <laughs> like like that is yeah, yeah all these things and like and again i'm not knocking any of this stuff but like Things like the Spartan race or Tough Mudder yeah, or yeah, any yeah. of these right. things that We're people do. We're all just do. recreating what used to be You're daily like, life. You are going to pay money <laughs> to go I and know. run through mud and climb up hills or all these other things. Meanwhile, two generations ago, every one of those people is looking at all of us and shaking yeah. their heads and being like, yeah. what the hell happened? Yep. I mean, the irony of that is, like, if you actually stop to think about it. It's is, not lost on me. I understand. It is a yeah. canyon, No, I, I think about that a lot, you know, because I'm, again, I'm a person who kind of looks back at, you know, and I like I, I like the big picture. And yeah. I like to think about where people have been and, you know, and where we are now. And, yeah, that, that irony is not lost on me. Like, it's it's incredible. And it's, you know, it's no different than the phones. It's like, even before phones, like, people were living a life that was just so foreign to anything else in human history. Just no effort involved to, and you can be overweight. I think, <laughs> you know, there weren't any fat, lazy people. I don't think you could maybe be lazy, but you'd probably be real skinny. Right. You know, I think one of the revelations that's coming out of this time, and I think it's kind of that snowball going down the hill, picking up speed mm-hmm. is that those of us that stop to actually consider things and sort of reflect and do a little bit of critical thinking are beginning to realize that 
the human animal needs struggle. Absolutely. It is inherent to our satisfaction of life. Yeah. And that excess is every bit as damaging as lack of. Right. If not more. Correct. Right. You know, like everything like now else. for fun, we don't eat for a day. You know, everybody's into fasting now, right? Which, <laughs> right? I mean, like, does anybody stop to think about I that? I know, I know. The entire history of the human race, we've been scrabbling and scrounging yeah, and God, digging I just, in the dirt. I wish I could eat every single day, three just meals a day. get enough so food great. to eat. And also, like, you want to talk about first world problems. Yeah. Like, there's plenty of the world now, and you and I have traveled to some of it, mm-hmm. where that's... Yeah, not the case. Not the case. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And when you consider just the absolute absurdity of our condition here in America, and that people complain about that. Mm-hmm. Man. It's remarkable. That's one word for it. I know. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's interesting times. I don't, you know, I think about that a lot and just the, you know, I, I went through those phases when I was younger. Obviously, I like history. I like the outdoors. Like, man, if I was only born back then you know but right you know but it, it it's it's interesting time as a person who likes to think it's it's a fascinating time to be alive man it's i don't know if it's for good or bad but it's it's something to twist around in your mind when you got i think you know, i think when it comes down to for good or bad i think it's where you choose to come down i think that we have uh i think that we have our hands on the wheel when it comes to that i hope so i think that you have the opportunity to decide this is for good mm-hmm. or this is for bad right. and where you want to put your efforts, right. you know, where, what, where are you going to push your chips out on the field? Right. And what, what are you going to sort of put your effort behind? I think that there's an increasing groundswell of people that are just sort of rejecting, you know, yeah, the easiest, I, there's path. a, there's a quote and I can, I don't know if it was Thoreau, maybe it was, and the quote is something to the effect of re-examine all that you know mm-hmm. and reject that which insults your soul. Nice. And I think that that's an important thing. I think yeah, that yeah. for a long time, there were a lot of powers that be that told us what we should want, what we should think, what was important. And I think for better or for worse, I think for worse in my opinion, a lot of people just kind of went blindly along with that. Sure. But I think now you're beginning to have this awakening right. where maybe because we're in such a position of privilege or comfort or whatever that we're able to stop and think for ourselves and well, say, wait a minute, why am I doing this? Or is this really what's good or what I want? Right, right. And I think that's the other side of the coin of the, the technology, mm-hmm. you know, is that for example, you know, growing up as a kid who was kind of bookish, mm-hmm. but also outdoorsy, mm-hmm. and I grew up in a small town. I mean, okay, my hometown, gun deer season was a week. There was no school the week of gun deer season, mm-hmm. okay? Firmly entrenched in the local culture, right? Right. I grew up with a lot of people that hunted and fished, right? but I felt kind of alone in the per being a person who thought about hunting and fishing right if that makes sense you know other than like how to shoot a deer or right. how to catch the fish you know i i had these kind of big philosophical questions about what we're doing how we do it why we do it yeah and i felt kind of like on an island in that regard 
and the, the plus of technology and the kind of resurgence of the the hunting and fishing philosophical conver- conservationist mm-hmm. mindset, like I found all of that online. Right. Right. So in a way, the, the, the plus side of technology and this open communication and this a lot of information was realizing, you know, I'm not alone here. There are a lot of people who, who have these same ideas and the sure. same, like, like to think about it and enjoy thinking about it, you know? You know, that's one of the things I've, about you that I've always found to be one of, like, the most fascinating things is, is how those two things are both manifest in you so deeply yeah yeah well and that's why we hit it off right away i think right because i you know i but i, I came saw to it from too. the other side yeah yeah no absolutely I but came you to keep, it from but a we place got to the same place profi- didn't we exactly yeah but i wonder why that i agree that technology has certainly allowed people to come together mm-hmm. in a big way and i think that that's a huge positive but i do wonder why there are not more people that cross that chasm where there's an appreciation of both an example of what i mean is i love rural america mm-hmm. i have it just it's just woven into me like i love yeah, likewise those places i mm-hmm. love the farms but there does not seem to be the depth of thought in those places that maybe you and i want enjoy i think it might be there to. but it's not immediately obvious and i you think know? you know I've, I've reflected on that a lot and i think it's out of again necessity and opportunity sure sure right like if you're scrounging for food and you're worried about paying the bills those are more immediate needs and you don't necessarily have time to yeah, sort of I, no, ask the bigger, absolutely true. bigger questions and also i think opportunity like education I was absolutely very, very fortunate to have a very good education, mm-hmm. and through that education, and also parents that, you know, that your parents put a premium, like a value on it. My parents say, would be yeah. like, yeah, you know, Saturday, what are we doing? We're going to the library. Go walk mm-hmm. around for a while. Right. I can't tell you how many things I found, like absolutely, you know, in the library, walking down aisles and aisles of books, reading, you know, the spine of a book. That sounds like a cool title. I. My my life developed in the halls of that library, and the fact that we don't put a premium on that. Go pick up a book. Go yeah, look. I Everything know. that you want to know, no matter what it is, is in a book. Like we are a social creature, and one of the things that we need to get back to is storytelling. Tell yeah, me I a like cool that. story for sure. Well, I tell you what, Ben. Um, I'm very, very much, uh, looking forward to, uh, getting out there on the water with you this summer and hopefully in the woods this fall. And I very much hope that you will come back and, uh, do another one of these with me. And, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. All right. Yeah. Hope we didn't ramble too widely. Not at all. It may have happened. Not at all, but, man. This is, uh, that's I, I feel what like this that's is all beauty, about. That's the beauty of conversation. It needs to be. Yeah. It needs yeah. To be. I like follow, take the thread and just follow it where it goes. You know, that's part of getting to know people. And, a strong cup and, of coffee and a couple glasses of bourbon and, yeah, uh, you figure bourbon, out where you yeah. go. <laughs> 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 all right. We appreciate you guys listening. And, uh, again, uh, email, if you want to reach out to us, is uh, modernsavagenation at gmail.com and the website, uh, modernsavagenation.com. Appreciate you guys. See you.